Chapter Six of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It had been decided that my command should thoroughly scout the country from Fort Hayes near the Smoky Hill River to Fort McPherson on the Platte, thence described a semicircle to the southward, touching the headwaters of the Republican, and again reach the Platte at or near Fort Sedgwick, at which post we would replenish our supplies then moved directly south to Fort Wallace on the Smoky Hill, and from there marched the overland route to our starting point at Fort Hayes. This would involve a ride of upwards of 1,000 miles. As is usually the case, the first day's march was not to be a long one. The troops under charge of the officer's second command, Colonel Wycliffe Cooper, left the camp and marched up the valley of Big Creek, a distance of eighteen miles, and there encamped. Two companies of cavalry and a small force of infantry were to constitute the garrison to remain behind. When the troops composing my command left, it became necessary to rearrange the camp and provide new disposition for defense. My wife, who always accompanied me when in camp or on the march except when I was engaged in active pursuit of Indians, had rejoined me soon after my arrival at Fort Hayes. She was accompanied by a young lady friend from the East, a schoolmate who had been tempted by the novelties of the wild western life to make her a visit in camp. As there were other ladies in camp, wives of officers who were to remain with the garrison, my wife and friend decided to remain and await our return, rather than go back to the protection and luxuries of civilization. To arrange for their comfort and superintend the locating of their tents, I remained behind my command, intending to wait until after midnight, and then, guided by the moonlight, ride on and overtake my command before it should commence its second day's march. I retained with me two soldiers, one scout and four of the Delawares. As soon as the command moved, the portion to remain at Fort Hayes was drawn in near the few buildings which constituted the fort. All of the cavalry and a portion of the infantry were to encamp in the valley, and not far from the stream. For three-quarters of a mile on either side of the valley consisted of a level, unbroken plain. Then a low bluff was encountered, succeeded by a second plain of less extent. This was bordered by a higher and more broken bluff than the first. Fortunately, in selecting the ground on which the tents intended for the ladies were to stand, I had chosen a little knoll, so small as to be scarcely perceivable, yet the only elevated ground to be found. It was within a few steps of the banks of the stream, while the main camp was located below and near the bluff. For safety reasons, a few soldiers were placed in camp a short distance above. In ordinary times, the banks of Big Creek are at this point from 25 to 45 feet above the water, and a person accustomed to the slow and gradual rise and fall which prevails along the beds of streams in the eastern states can with difficulty realize the suddenness with which the deep and narrow channels of the watercourses of the plains become filled with overflowing water. The proportion to the surface of the country, or the watersheds, the watercourses or channels are few, too few, to accommodate the drainage necessary during the wet season. The banks on which the little knoll stood was, by actual measurement, 
thirty-six feet above ordinary water mark. The knoll was probably three or four feet above the level of the valley. Surely this location might be considered well enough for protected naturally against the rainy season. So I thought, as I saw the working party putting the finishing touches to the bright white canvas house, which to all intents and purposes was to be to me, even in my absence, my army home. I confidently expected to return to this camp at the termination of my march. I will be pardoned if I anticipate events and terminate its history now. A few days after my command had marched, a heavy storm set in, the rain pouring down in a matter resembling a water spout. The immediate effect of the heavy shower was not at once noticeable near the camp at Fort Hayes, as the heaviest rainfall had occurred far above that point. But in the night time, after the entire camp except the guards had long since retired and fallen asleep, the stream, overcharged by the rushing volumes from above, soon became transformed from a mild and murmuring brook into an irresistible turbulent torrent. So sudden and unexpected had been the rise, that before the alarm could be given, the thirty-six feet which had been separating the surface of the water from the top of the banks had been overcome, and in addition the water began now sweeping over the entire plain. After overflowing the natural banks of the creek, the first new channel ran in such a manner as to surround the tents occupied by the ladies, as well as that occupied by the few soldiers stationed up the stream, but still leaving communication open between the main camp and the bluff toward the mainland. The soldiers, as well as the officers and their families in the main camp, hastened to the bluff to escape being swept down the huge torrent, which each instant became more fearful. To add to the embarrassment of the situation, the blackest darkness prevailed, only relieved at times by vivid gleams of lightning, while the deep, sullen roar of the torrent, increasing each moment in depth and volume, was only drowned at intervals by the fierce and more deafening uproar of the thunder, which sounded like the applause of some huge fury watching the struggle between the elements. When Mrs. Custer and her young lady companion were awakened by the storm, they discovered that their tents were surrounded by the new channel, and that all efforts to reach the main camp would prove unavailing. They had with them at this time only a colored female servant. They did not even know the fate of the other portion of the camp. In the midst of this fearful scene, they heard the series of cries of men in despair near their tent, the cries came from soldiers who had been in camp above them, but were now being carried off in the darkness by the rising current. No assistance could reach them. It is doubtful if they could have been saved, even if they had been found by daylight. There were seven in all. One of them, as he was being swept by the tent, contrived through accident, no doubt, to grasp the branch of a small brush which grew on the bank. It was for him that the cries of distress principally proceeded. Aided by the dim light of a camp lantern, the ladies were enabled to see this unfortunate man clinging, as it were, between life and death. With commendable presence of mind, considering the fate staring them in the face, a rope was procured, and after a few failures, one end was thrown to the unfortunate man, 
and by the united strength of the two ladies and their servant he was pulled ashore and for the time being at least his life was saved his six less fortunate companions were drowned two of the officers brevet major-general a j smith and his adjutant-general colonel ware with a view to rescuing the ladies had succeeded in making their way across the new channel made by the torrent to the knoll but when attempting to return on horseback to the mainland they found the current too deep and swift for them to succeed they were compelled then to await their fate the water continued to rise until the entire valley from the natural channel to the first bluff a distance of a quarter of a mile was covered by an unfordable river the only point still free from water was the little knoll which i had been so fortunate as to select for the tents but the rise in the water continued until it finally reached the edge of the tent at this rate the tents themselves must soon be swept away as a last resort a gatling gun which stood near the entrance of the tent and which from its great weight would probably withstand the force of the current was hauled closer to the tents and ropes securely attached to the wheels by these ropes it was proposed to fasten the ladies and the servant to the gun and in this way should the streams not rise too high above the knoll their lives might be saved the colored girl eliza who was devoted to her mistress and who had been amid scenes of great danger was on this occasion invaluable eliza had quite a history before she visited the plains formerly a slave but set free by the war she had accompanied me as cook during the last three years of the war twice taken prisoner by the confederates she each time made her escape and refound me she was present at almost every prominent battle of the army of the potomac accompanied by command on all raids and winter marches and upon more than one occasion during the progress of a battle eliza might be seen near the front earnestly engaged in preparing a cup of coffee for the officers at the headquarters who but for her would have gone through the day dinnerless i have seen her remain by the camp cook fire when the enemy shells were bursting overhead to such an extent that men who were similarly employed deserted their station, and sought shelter in the rear. There were few officers or soldiers in the cavalry corps, from General Sheridan down, with whom Eliza was not a great favorite. All had a pleasant word for her, and few had not at some time or another cause to remember her kindness. When the water finally approached close to the tent, Eliza marked its progress from time to time by placing a small stake at the water line, how anxiously the gradual rise of the torrent must have been watched at last when all hope seemed almost exhausted the waters were stayed in their progress and soon the great joy of the little party besieged began to recede it was still dark but so rapidly did the volume of water diminish as rapidly as it accumulated that a few hours after daylight a safe passage was effected to the mainland with the exception of those of the six soldiers no lives were lost although many narrow escapes were made in the morning daylight showed the post hospital a stone building surrounded by an unfordable stream the water rushing through the doors and windows the patients had managed to climb up upon the roof 
and could be seen by the officers and men on the mainland. No boats were to be had, but no class of men are so full of expedients as soldiers. The beds of some governed wagons were hastily removed, the canvas covers were stretched under the bottoms, and in this way a temporary kind of pontoon was constructed, which answered the desired purpose, and by means of which the beleaguered patients were soon released. The officer in command of the infantry, Major Merriman, was occupying a tent with his wife near the main camp. Finding himself cut off from the main land, but before the water had attained its greatest depth, he took his wife in his arms and forded the stream which ran between his tent and the bluff, and in this manner reached a point of safety. It is remarkable, however, that within two years from the date of this occurrence, the same officer with his wife and child encountered a similar freshet in Texas, hundreds of miles from this locality, and in that watery grave which was so narrowly avoided in Kansas, awaited the mother and child in Texas. Of the circumstances of the storm at Fort Hayes, I was necessarily ignorant until weeks later. Soon after midnight, everything being in readiness, and my little party having been refreshed by a cup of good army coffee, it only remained to say adieu to those who were to remain behind, and we were ready for our moonlight gallop. But little was said as we made our way rapidly over the plain in the direction taken by the command. Occasionally, as we dashed across the ravine, we would suddenly come upon a herd of antelope or a few scattering buffaloes, startling them from their response and causing them to wonder what was the occasion and who the strange parties disturbing the peaceful quiet of the night in this unusual manner. On the speed, our good steeds snuffing the early morning air and pressing forward as eagerly as if they knew their companions were awaiting them in the advance, Daylight had given us no evidence of its coming when, after a ride of nearly twenty miles, we found ourselves descending into the valley in which we knew the command must be encamped. The moon had disappeared before the horizon, and we were left to make our way aided by such light as the stars twinkling in a clear sky afforded us. Our horses gave us unmistakable evidence that camp was near, to convince us beyond all doubt the clear ringing notes of the bugle sounded the reveille greeting our ears as directed by the sound we soon found ourselves in camp the cavalry camp immediately after reveille always presents an animated and most interesting scene as soon as the rolls are called and the reports of absentees made to headquarters the men of the companies with the exception of the cooks are employed in the care of the horses the later are fed, and while eating, are thoroughly groomed by the men under the superintendence of their officers. Nearly an hour is devoted to this important duty. In the meanwhile, the company cooks tend each company, and the officers' servants are busily engaged preparing breakfast, so that within a few minutes after the horses have been received in proper attention, breakfast is ready, and being simple it requires but little time to dispose of it. Immediately after breakfast, the first bugle call indicates of the march is the general, and is the signal for tents to be taken down and everything packed in readiness for moving. A few minutes later, this is followed by the bugler at headquarters sounding boots and saddles. 
when horses are saddled up and the wagon trains put in readiness for pulling out. Five minutes later, to horse is sounded, and the men of each company lead their horses into line, each trooper standing at the head of his horse. At the words, prepare to mount, from the commanding officer each trooper places his left foot in the stirrup, and at the command of mount, every man rises on his stirrup and places himself in the saddle, the whole command presenting the appearance to the eye of a huge machine propelled by one power. Woe betide the unfortunate trooper who through carelessness or inattention fails to place himself in the saddle simultaneously with his companions. If he is not for this offense against military rule deprived of the services of his horse during the succeeding half-day's march, he escapes luckily. As soon as the command is mounted, the advance is sounded, and the troops usually in the columns of fours moves out. The company leading the advance one day march in rear the following day. This success of changing gives each company an opportunity to march by regular turn in advance. On average, daily march, when it is not immediate pursuit of an enemy, was about 25 miles. Upon reaching in the evening, the horses were cared for as in the morning, opportunities being given them to graze before dark. Pickets were posted, and every precaution adopted to guard against surprise. Our second day's march brought us to the Saline River, which we encamped for the night. From our campground we could see on a knoll some two miles distant a platform or scaffold erected, which resembled somewhat one of our war signal stations. Curious to discover its purpose, I determined to visit it. Taking with me Comstock and a few soldiers, I soon reached the point, and discovered that the object of my curiosity and surprise was an Indian grave. The body, instead of being consigned to Mother Earth, was placed on top of the platform. The latter was constructed of saplings, and was about twenty feet in height. From Comstock I learned that with some of the tribes this is the usual mode of displaying of the body after death. The prevailing belief of the Indian is that when done with this world, the spirit of the deceased is transferred to the happy hunting ground, where he is permitted to engage in the same pleasures and pursuits which he preferred while on earth. To this end, it is deemed essential that after death the departed must be supplied with the same equipment and ornaments considered necessary while in the flesh. In this accordance with this belief, a complete Indian outfit, depending in extent upon the rank and importance of the deceased, is prepared and consigned with the body to the final resting place. The body found on this occasion must have been that of a son of some important chief. It was not full grown, but accompanied with all the arms and adornments usually owned by a warrior. There was a bow and a quiver full of steel-pointed arrows, a tomahawk and a scalping knife, and a red clay pipe and a small bag full of tobacco. In order that the departed spirit should not be wholly dependent upon friends after his arrival at the happy hunting ground, he had been supplied with provisions consisting of small parcels of containing coffee, sugar, and bread. Weapons of modern structure had also been furnished him, a revolver and rifle with powder and ball ammunition for each, and a saddle, bridle, and lariat for his pony. Added to these was a supply of wearing apparel, embracing every article known in an Indian's toilet, 
not excepting the various colored paints to be used in decorating himself in war a handsome buckskin scalping pocket profusely ornamented with beads completed the outfit but for fear that white women's scalps might not be readily obtainable and desiring no doubt to be received at once as a warrior who in his own country at least was not without renown a white woman's scalp was also considered as a necessary accompaniment a letter of introduction to the dusky warriors and chieftains who had gone before as the indian of the plains is himself only when on horseback provisions must be made for mounting him properly in the indian heaven to accomplish this the favorable war pony is led beneath the platform on which the body of the warrior is placed at rest and then strangled to death no signs indicating the recent presence of indians were discovered by our scouts until we neared the republican river where the trail of a small war party was discovered running down one of the tributaries of the republican after following it far enough to determine the futility of pursuit the attempt was relinquished upon crossing the republican we suddenly came in full view of about a hundred mounted warriors who without waiting for a parley of any kind set off as fast as their horses could carry them one squadron was sent in pursuit but was unable to overhaul the indians from the tracks we learned that the indians were mounted on horses stolen from the stage company the horses were of superior quality and purchased by the company at a price about double that paid by the government this was the only occasion on which we saw indians before reaching the platte river one of our camps was pitched on the banks of a small stream which had been named beaver creek comstock informed us that here an opportunity could be had of killing a few beavers as they were very numerous all along the stream which had derived its name from the fact we had gone into camp about three p m the numerous stumps and fallen trees as well as the beaver dams attested the accuracy of comstock's statement by his advice we waited until sundown before taking our stations on the bank not far above the site of our camp as at this time the beaver would be out and on shore placing ourselves under comstock's guidance a small party proceeded to the ground selected where we were distributed singularly at stations along the stream and quietly awaited the appearance of the beaver whether the noise from the camp below or the passing of hunting parties of soldiers in the afternoon had frightened them i know not i remained at my station with my rifle in hand ready to fire at the first beaver which should offer itself as a sacrifice until the sun had disappeared and darkness had begun to spread its heavy mantle over everything around me no living thing had thus far disturbed my reveries my station was on the immediate bank of the stream on a path which had evidently been made by wild animals of some kind the bank rose above me to a distance of nearly twenty feet i was just at the point of leaving my station and giving up all hope of getting a shot when i heard the rustling of the long dried grass a few yards lower down the stream cocking my rifle i stood ready to deliver its contents into the approaching animal which i presumed would have been seen to be a beaver as soon as it should emerge from the tall grass it did not make its appearance in the path in which i stood until within a few feet of me 
when to my great surprise I beheld instead of a beaver an immense wildcat. It was difficult to say which of us was the most surprised. Without delaying long to think, I took a hasty aim and fired. The next moment I heard a splash which relieved my mind as to which of us should retain the right of way on shore, the path being too narrow to admit our passing of each other. I had either wounded or killed a wildcat, and its body in the darkness had been carried down with the current as the dogs, which were soon attracted from the camp by my shot, were unable to find the trail on either bank. Nothing occurred to break the monotony of our march until we reached Fort McPherson on the Platte River. The country over which we had marched had been quite varied in its character, and as we neared the Platte it became very broken and abrupt. It was only by availing ourselves of Comstock's superior knowledge of the country that we found an easy exit from the deep canyons and rough defiles which we were encountered. At Fort McPherson we refilled our wagons with supplies and rations and forage. At the same time, in accordance with my instructions, I reported by telegraph my arrival to General Sherman, who was then farther west of the line of the Union Pacific Road. He did not materially change my instructions, further than to direct me to remain near Fort McPherson until his arrival, which would be in the course of a few days. Moving my command about twelve miles from the fort, I arranged for a council with Pawnee Killer and a few other Sioux chiefs, who had arrived at the Platte about the same time as my command. My object was, if possible, to induce Pawnee Killer and his band with such other Indians as might choose to join them to bring their lodges into the vicinity of the fort and remain at peace with the whites. Pawnee Killer and his chiefs met me in council, and the subject was discussed, but with no positive conclusions. While protesting strongly in favor of preserving peaceful relations with us, the subsequent conduct of the chiefs only confirmed the suspicion that they had arranged the council not to perfect a friendly agreement with us, but to spy out and discover, if possible, our future plans and movements. In this, they were disappointed. Their numerous inquiries as to where we intended proceeding when we resumed the march were unavailing. Desiring to leave nothing undone to encourage a friendly attitude on their part, I gave the chiefs a parting with them liberal presents of coffee, sugar, and other articles gratifying to the taste of an Indian. They departed after giving utterance to the strongest expressions of their desire to live at peace with their white brothers and promised to collect their families and bring them in under protection of the fort, and thus avoid becoming entangled in the ravages of an Indian war, which now promised to become general throughout the plains. Pawnee Killer and his chiefs never attempted to keep their promises. General Sherman arrived at my camp the next day. He had no confidence in the faith of Pawnee Killer and his band, and desired that a party be sent in pursuit at once, and bring the chiefs back and retain a few of the prominent ones as hostages for the fulfillment of their agreement. This was decided to be impracticable. It was then judged best for me to move my command in a southwesterly direction to the forks of the Republican and a section of the country usually infested by Indians, and there endeavor to find the village of Pawnee Killer and compel him, if necessary, to move nearer to the fort, so that we might distinguish between those who were friendly and those who were not. 
Besides, it was known that Cheyennes and Sioux, whom we had pursued from the Arkansas along the Smoky Hill River, had not crossed north of the Platte, and they were rightly supposed to be located somewhere near the forks of the Republican. I could reach this point in three days' marching after leaving the Platte River, on whose banks we were then encamped. Owing to the rough and broken character of the bluffs which bound the valley of the Platte on the south side, it was determined to march up the men about fifteen miles from the fort and strike south through an opening in the bluffs known as Jack Morrow's Canyon. General Sherman rode with us as far as this point, where, after commending the Cheyennes and Sioux to us in his expressive manner, he bade us good-bye and crossed the river to the railroad station on the north side. Thus far, we had no real Indian warfare. We were soon to experience it, attended by all its frightful barbarities. End of chapter 6